Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Dear Sugar is supported by. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome. Tonight, we're doing something special on our show. Yes. What are we doing? Well, we are in church, is what's happening. That's right. <laughs> and there are a lot of people watching us in church. But this is who you can hear laughing. We're talking to now our listening audience, to clue them in. We're in Cambridge, right. Massachusetts. We're here on the occasion of the publication of my book, Brave Enough, yes. a book of quotes. And Harvard Bookstore has been so kind enough to host us in this venue so we could do a live taping. Our first Live taping. Of the show. Right. So, you know, my book is a book of quotes. And they're quotes from my previous books and talks and so forth. But I thought an interesting approach might be, before we go to the next part of our show, which is going to be to actually take questions from the audience and answer them sort of speed round style or as fast as we can. I thought it might be interesting for us to share with the audience, both present and out there in the air, the quotes that have inspired us or consoled us or done one of those powerful things that quotes can do. Can you share one with us? I'm going to share one with you, which is near and dear to my heart. And I'll just read it, and I'm going to read just a short version of it. No, you know what? I'm going to read the long version, and if it needs to be edited... Then it'll be edited. It's about uh, 150 pages. And it's... <laughs> Call me Ishmael. No, no, no. And it's from this book. Right. It's from the book Stoner, from the novel Stoner, which is not actually about uh, pot use, frankly, as I <laughs> well, thought but, it was. You know, I want to linger here first, because yeah. this is a book you have talked about many times to me, and it yes. was far into our relationship that I realized it wasn't a book about a pot smoker. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I... Somehow, I just assumed it was. And then one day I was online. I was Googling you for some reason. Always a mistake. And there, what comes up is this beautiful piece you wrote for the, was it for the New, New York, York Times? Times Magazine, somebody. New York Times yeah. Magazine, where you held forth on a book that was powerful and meaningful to you. And right. it was that book. 
It was this book, and here is just a little bit of why. All you need to know is that uh, the main character is named Stoner. Uh, And maybe it's important to know that he's had a profoundly unhappy marriage. It's been a disaster, and he has just uh, launched the great affair of his life rather unexpectedly in middle age. In his extreme youth, Stoner had thought of love as an absolute state of being to which, if one were lucky, one might find access. In his maturity, he had decided it was the heaven of a false religion toward which one ought to gaze with an amused disbelief, a gently familiar contempt, and an embarrassed nostalgia. Now, in his middle age, he began to know that it was neither a state of grace nor an illusion. He saw it as a human act of becoming a condition that was invented and modified moment by moment and day by day by the will and the intelligence and the heart. Hmm. And I love that quote because for many years, like uh, a lot of people, especially men, I'll say, I mistrusted the word love. I was just suspicious of it because it is so big and squishy and it means so many different things for so many different people. And we also carry around the idea that love is something external from us, something that we have to apply to or that maybe if we're lucky or we do the right thing or wear the right shoes or whatever it is, it will come into our life. We don't think of love as something that is actually created, that we create in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment way, which I now, after years of, of, uh, I think, not getting that in a marriage and certainly as a parent, I understand that. It's something that's really moment by moment and that, you, that we are inventing. And everything, I don't believe in God, I will say, in, the, in a church. <laughs> or to modify that, I believe that God exists not above us but between us and within us. And it is consecrated the, through the transmission of love which is the effort to arrest our attention in the midst of distraction so that we can be present for the joy and sometimes the pain and suffering that every life is going to bring. Mm -hmm. One of the the pieces of advice that I give or gave over and over in my column, I don't know why I don't do this on the radio show for some reason, but in the column, I, I often would say to people, you know, write this word down and put it, you know, on your mirror or wherever you uh, encounter it a lot. For me, I do that because it's a reminder for me to be who I hope to be, who I want to be, who I aspire to be. Sometimes it's like humility or surrender. I'm curious if you've ever used either quotes or even just a word or a phrase in that way. You know what I do uh, now, which is, uh, I mean, I, I guess every kind of quelling parent does this, but I actually write down what my kids say. Uh, partly because they just put it right out there. They don't have a filter. They don't have a force that's second-guessing how you should say things or how you should think of things. Mm -hmm. So we've got a whole list of kind of crazy quotes on the side of our refrigerator, um, many of which are designed to, as you said, I think very wisely, uh, kind of keep us humble in the face of moments where we're, we're not. The other night, I was really uh, anguishing over what I should wear, which will sound odd given that I always wear the same thing. But I, <laughs> I was anguishing over it, and I said, uh, Jose, what do you think? You know, what should Papa wear? What should I wear? And she said, I don't know, Papa, but you should think about this. How do you want to be remembered? <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Quotes to keep us humble. That will be your next book, right? 
people are always, you know, asking me like, well, how, who are you to give advice? Why do you get to be an advice columnist or why? And it's like, you know, I think that as long as you're a human, you, you get to give advice yeah. and it comes in all forms, you know, and if we're awake to that, it can be through the mouths of babes, right? Out mm-hmm. of a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. So here's, I want to share with you a quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is from Edna O'Brien's uh, novel, Down by the River. She's one of my favorite writers. Uh, really just an astounding woman who's been writing. Her first book was published, I believe, in 1960 or 61, The Country Girls Trilogy. She's Irish. And um, this novel, Down by the River, it's set in Ireland, and it's about a young woman who is raped by her father and becomes pregnant, and there's a big uh, scandal around whether she should be allowed to have an abortion or not. But this passage, I'm reading along the novel, and this passage struck me. There is really no such thing as youth. There is only luck. And the enormity of something which can happen when a person, any person, is brought deeper and more profoundly into sorrow. And once they have gone there, they can't come back. They have to live in it, live in that dark, and find some glimmer in it. Mm. I love this quote. It's, It's actually included in my first book, Torch, Uh, which is a novel all about grief, about a a young mother dying and her family's grief. And I was so moved by that phrase that you have to live in that dark and find some glimmer in it. And it seems like a sort of depressing quote, but actually for me it's been so much a driving force in my life to remember that, uh, you know, all of us, all of us have hard things, misfortune, sometimes things that feel almost totally annihilating, life-ending. Um, and I certainly have had, you know, those sorts of experiences in my young life. And I, what I realized pretty early on is that my job was to find some glimmer in it. And I've always thought that that was also the best piece of advice I could give to anyone who sought it from me, especially people who actually come uh, seeking advice out of a place of, of real suffering. Mm-hmm. They say, well, how can I hold this? How can I bear this? Right. And, you know, Steve and I, in our show, you know, we're always trying to console people and, and, and say we're so sorry that this hurts or that hurts. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that things hurt. And I feel like that this uh, quote from Edna O'Brien is a close cousin to one of the quotes I'm brave enough that it's the only quote that technically uh, isn't mine, but I think my mother would forgive me. And that is, put yourself in the way of beauty. Mm-hmm. And where that came from is that my mom would always say to me when I was complaining about one thing or the other, nothing too significant, just sort of complaining as a miserable teenager or whatnot. Um, And she would say, Cheryl, you always have the choice to have beauty in your life. There's always a sunrise and there's always a sunset, and it's up to you to decide whether you're going to be there for it or not. And it's interesting to me, you know, it wasn't until I wrote Wild that I even thought about my mother telling me that. I mean, you know, all these years later, the things our parents tell us, we sometimes forget them. And then all these years later, this phrase came to the fore in my life. Mm -hmm. And then when I went back and looked at, like, this Edna O'Brien quote I just read or other quotes that I've, you know, stuck up on my bulletin board or included in my books, they point to that kind of resilience. I think that that's what resilience is, right? If we found essentially the etymology of that word, I wouldn't be surprised at all to learn that it's about finding light in the darkness, you know, finding that glimmer 
in the dark place. That's, to me, uh, been just such a driving force in my life. Yeah, and a lot of the letters that we receive, because people will sometimes say, I'm sure they say it to you, they say to me, boy, isn't that kind of heavy stuff to carry around? It's so dark, it's so intense. And being the kind of person I am, I'm just like, I'm glad to know I'm not alone in that. Yeah. That's actually a great relief, and it's unburdening. And primarily what people want is permission to feel what they're feeling. Yeah. So we sort of frame it as an advice show, but more or less all we're doing is sort of thinking and talking around what people are suffering with often and not trying to undo it or give them some bromide or some, you know, but just reflect and be there with them. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take your questions momentarily. But first, we have a secret surprise special guest. Yes, we do. We do. And she's going to come out here any moment. And she is a rock star. She is also the author of the book, The Art of Asking, Amanda Palmer. And her baby. I'll hold that baby. This is her eight-week-old baby. Okay, so Amanda's going to sing us a little song. Do you want to go to that microphone, honey bun? In my mind, in a future five years from now, I'm a hundred and twenty pounds And I never get hung over <laughs> Because I will be the picture of discipline Never minding what state I'm in And I will be someone I admire And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But it does not seem to have happened Maybe I've just forgotten how To see That I'm not exactly the person That I thought I'd be And in my mind In the far away here and now I've become in control somehow And I never lose my wallet Because I will be the picture of discipline Never fucking up anything And I'll be a good defensive driver And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But it does not seem to have happened Maybe I've just forgotten how To see that I'm not exactly the person That I thought I'd be And in my mind, when I'm old, I am beautiful, planting tulips and vegetables, which I will mindfully watch over, not like me now. I'm so busy with everything 
that I don't look at anything But I'm sure I'll look when I'm a mother And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But that's not what I want If that's what I wanted Then I'd be giving up somehow How strange to see That I don't want to be the person that I want to be And in my mind I imagine so many things Things that aren't really happening And when they put me in the ground I'll start pounding the lid Saying I haven't finished yet I still have a tattoo to get That says I'm living in the moment And it's funny how I imagined That I would win this winless fight But maybe it really isn't funny That I've been fighting all my life But maybe I have to think it's funny If I want to live before I die And maybe it's funny as to all To think I'll die before I actually say That I am exactly the person that I want to be Fuck yes person that I want to be. Support for Dear Sugars comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. That was fantastic, Amanda Palmer. (laughs) And baby Anthony. Yeah, and did you notice he's wearing his little NPR shirt? Yeah, I know. Which was actually, it it was a gift today sent to me by Guy Raz, which makes me feel like I'm part of some NPR Illuminati. You are. (laughs) The fact that I'm jealous that Guy Raz is sending you presents. You see the sedating effect that that T-shirt had. <laughs> um. So that was fantastic and full of really quotable moments, I have yeah. to say. Thank you. Uh, that's right. What, my favorite one is just, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. That's a really good just catch-all quote. It is. It's all occasions. <laughs> so what do you think about quotes? Have, have, how have they worked in your life? Um, well, you know, like, like you, as a person who tours and has written a book, I get asked that all the time. Right. Do you want to put the that baby kid, on the boob? That kid wants to eat. Yeah, that kid. Yeah, you I can whip out your boob. We don't mind. Breastfeeding in public. We are a... So- <laughs> like, I'm we, not, sh- you I'm know not sure we're on public radio when jealous, we're breastfeeding so. on the air. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want us to think about how much people have an agenda. 
And we're here with a particular agenda, and this guy has a whole other agenda. <laughs> um, so, wow. <laughs> you know, there's, there's one thing about breastfeeding in public. There's another thing about breastfeeding in on public st- on stage in a church. <laughs> That's its own special moment. And also then now having to actually answer a question. I get asked about quotes all the time. And so when you were asking about quotes, one of my favorites is a quote that I used in my book, um, The Art of Asking, which I couldn't find a completely uh, attributable attribution. But hearsay is it's Tip O'Neill. And the quote is, if you want to make someone your friend, ask them for a favor. Mm. And I led one of the chapters in The Art of Asking with that because it really does kind of distill the philosophy of the book, which is when you ask people for things, and my God, as a new mother, I am living the philosophy of my book into realms that I never thought (laughs) I would ever see. But it is true that when you ask someone for something anything right. that kind of is how you make your relationship with them yeah it's an interesting thing to think about because in a world where we're so distrustful of each other and we don't think we can ask each other for help even the people who are close to us because we're afraid we're going to break those relationships by being imposing mm. or admitting that we need help right or looking bad mm-hmm. and and actually it's kind of the opposite and i think people don't see that asking in itself can sort of be the gift to the relationship. Yeah. Well, I think it's always interesting. My husband has such a hard time asking for things. And whenever... Other, other boob. He's really... Other boob. <laughs> Here comes the other boob. And whenever he's reluctant, I say to him, well, would you feel uncomfortable if that person asked you for that same thing? And he says, of course not. I think we underestimate the universe's desire to be kind to us. Yeah. Remember that when you ask somebody, you're giving them an opportunity to enact generosity Mm -hmm. and grace in their lives, right? Yeah. And I think we don't see that necessarily as a gift. We see it as an imposition. Mm -hmm. And you can see that, you know, young children are great teachers in this capacity because they don't have any problem asking. No. Kids are amazing that way. They'll ask for anything. Other boob. Other boob. (laughs) I need the other boob. Steve also wants the other boob. I'm going to give her an opportunity to enact generosity in her life. I mean, now, now before things turn tawdry, I was actually, I guess they already have. So, but I was actually thinking about the famous scene at the end of the Grapes of Wrath, which I think is really our great American novel, frankly. Um, and that scene is, you know, was very controversial at the time because those of you who remember it, uh, you know, Rose of Sharon, who's pregnant but loses the baby, and, right? She's one of the Joads, and she, a man is starving. And, uh, you know, the final act of that novel is this incredible act of generosity where she literally rest feeds him hmm. to keep him alive, mm-hmm. right? Um, anyway. But, yeah, I mean, it is in a culture where we're being given this constant mixed message, which is, like, be vulnerable, be yourself, you know, be kind to other people. There's this barrage of the opposite message, which is do it yourself and be independent. Mm -hmm. And do it totally yourself and be independent. What a confusing message to constantly be given, or two messages to constantly be given as a human being. And also, I think what you're tapping into is this idea of this American myth of self-reliance. Right. It is all about saying, well, you actually, you don't need other people. It's a, we, we lost, somewhere along the way, I feel like, as a culture, we lost the sense that actually our strength resides in communal values. Right. And self-reliance, when you think about that and the, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing... And I discuss this in The Art of Asking, too, which is the idea of DIY. 
the DIY ethos, like, is a paradox. Because the whole idea of DIY was, let's go be punk and do things together without the system. Let's help each other directly. You know, build your own community. Right. Basically, do it yourself together. Yeah, so d- right. Do it DIY is sort of a mis- yeah. misnomer because it was absolutely about that, drawing on your community to make something happen. Exactly. Yeah. It's a beautiful So thing. I have a question for Amanda. Are, do you have, I, like, a musical quote that you love? Oh, God, that's, you put me on the spot. Sorry. Um, I'll tell you mine, and then you can, you, you'll have time to think of yours. I love the line, uh, your heart gets bored with your mind and it changes you. The John Prine line. Uh, I've, I've thought about that over and over and over again in terms of thinking. We talk about it a lot yeah. on the show. How do people transform? When is the moment of transformation? And I feel like over and over again, what happens is your heart, your emotional system, your psychic, your inner life gets bored of yeah. the messages and the ruts that your brain, your sort of intellect is sending, and fundamentally something changes. You and then it. there is my oft-repeated and always true quote from Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. <laughs> love is a battlefield. Um, one of my favorite songwriters of all time is Robin Hitchcock, mm-hmm. and he has a great line that goes, um, I'll have to sing it because otherwise it doesn't make sense. It goes, no, 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 no. All right, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda Palmer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And you're going to come back and sing a song at the end. Thank you. She's got a ukulele and a nursing baby. There we go. I think we should all feel uh, kind of deeply shamed by how few things we're doing. (laughs) Simultaneously. Amanda's tuning her uke, feeding her beautiful amazing. baby, and having an intellectual discourse with us clowns. Indeed. But now the moment has come, guys. We're going to answer audience questions. I've got one in my hand. Steve's got a pile of them. And I think, why don't we just hit it right now? Dear Sugar, who was your Dear Sugar? Where did you go to hear the truth spoken back to you? Wow, what a fantastic question. And I think I'm going to answer very boringly, uh, but truthfully, books, literature. That is, I think, part of the reason that we have a a certain kind of kinship. I certainly read Wilde and was stunned by the, the writing and the story, but also this idea that along that trip, literature and those voices who are trying to speak to us, who are trying to get to the bottom of what it means to be human in in whatever form, fiction, poetry, prose, whatever it is, that that was your company. You know, I think all writers are basically jealous readers. You know, we, we see something and say, those are the people who are really playing for the real stakes on earth. They have showed up for their life and they're mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. commemorate it in a way. They're trying to transmit love through their characters to the reader. Right. Um, And so I have that same list of sort of influences of books that I read. I can remember, you know, Jim Farrell reading the first chapter of Catcher in the Rye to me at age 14 to our English, you know, class and me just going, holy shit, this is literature. Mm -hmm. Like some kid just telling the truth about how disappointed he is. Yeah, I would say the same is true for me. And certainly people in my life. I get that question a lot. I think people are often very worried about me. Um, (laughs) No, it's because, you know, when I, especially perhaps when I was writing the column, because 
you know, there would be these very emotional letters from readers, and then I would write a very emotional response. And people worried, well, like, who do you go to, you know, for this? And you, you have this burden, carrying these burdens. And what I say about that is, it doesn't feel like a burden to me to consider other people's problems and struggles, because I always consider them as my own. And, I, and I've always found it to be deeply helpful to not turn away from things. And I think that I've found so many answers in literature, but I've also found answers, frankly, through my own writing. Writing itself is a catharsis to me. Right. I, I used to deny that because I wanted to be, when I was more insecure about myself as a writer, I wanted to, to firmly establish myself in the high art camp. Yes. Um, which was to be as far away from, I guess, anything that you would use the words healing or catharsis. Um, I didn't want anyone to make the mistake that I was, you know, quote unquote, only writing for those reasons, because I certainly wasn't. I always wanted to write to make literature. But what I found is if I was going to be perfectly honest, like the greatest healing in my life, absolutely by far and away, has been writing, because my writing asks me to answer the deepest questions. Right, right. Okay, all right. So uh, here you go. Um, Dear Sugars, can a man really be just friends with a woman he's attracted to without ruining his relationship? A hush fell with, over the crowd. <laughs> I, I guess and, I know. And some set of people got very uncomfortable. So can a man... Will you, so read can a man really be just friends with a woman he's attracted to without ruining his relationship? Oh, his relationship with the woman, with I the presume, friend. yes. Okay. What do you think, man? Oh, look at that. Man? Do you see how she does this? I will, I will. I'll take a stab at it, and then you can get it right. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's our MO. Okay, that's how it works. So uh, I, I think the question, as is so often the case in our letters, the question is kind of the answer. This is a, a gentleman who has written this who is struggling. He's got an internal conflict. He's attracted to a woman, and he knows that for reasons that aren't articulated, because he had to scribble this off real quickly, that is not reciprocated necessarily. And so the question is, can I live with that desire knowing that it's going to be unrequited? And I have no idea whether you can. (laughs) No, look, I I had an experience with... um, uh, a woman I met years ago where I really felt like a friend of ours watched us in action and he said, it's like you guys have, like uh, most of us are interacting and, and the radio channels, they're like four or five out of ten that are maybe synced up at any one time. You guys have like all ten going. And I knew that and I felt that as well. Mm-hmm. But she, for whatever complicated set of reasons, did not feel that. And I could not bear to be in that relationship. And I was really just being honest. I tried not to be a jerk about it, but let's be frank. There's always a power balance in every relationship, and in particular in romantic relationships. There is a a lover and a beloved, and sometimes that pivots throughout the course of a relationship. But in cases like this or my relationship, I desired something. It was very apparent to me, and she, for whatever reasons, which were completely her own and valid, did not. And I couldn't be there. It was too painful. What you have to think about is, can you? Can you stand to be around somebody who you truly value? Is the friendship platonic part of the relationship powerful enough to allow you to live with your desire and direct that kind of energy and intention and desire at another party? Yeah. I I think it absolutely depends how strong that attraction is and what it's made of. If it's just 
a, a you know, sort of light sexual attraction that we feel for any number of people. First of all, that will probably fade over time as you do become friends. But if that attraction is rooted to a desire to have something more in that relationship, I do think that taking a step back is a good idea because right. it's torture to be in a relationship with someone torture. who doesn't give you, you know, enough. I always think of this idea of you know, scarcity versus abundance. And most of the people in your life should give you a feeling of abundance. And if they don't, you know, I often think, you know, either curtail or, or end that relationship. If you're constantly in the company of someone who, who, who you're always feeling like, oh, if I just could have that thing, you know, and sadly, some people have that relationship with like a parent. And that's incredibly yeah. painful because it's a much more complicated thing to either get that kind of love or, or leave that kind of relationship. But when it comes to sexual attraction, it is something that's up to us. And, and we can't be friends with everyone. There are reasons that some people break up and uh, aren't friends with their exes. And people who are friends with their ex-lovers, it's usually after a period of transition where there was that separation because they have to kind of get over that that attraction dynamic in their relationship before they can go forward. Yeah, yeah. And it's very important and good that you are honest with yourself about this. It never works to try to push feelings that strong underground. Yeah. Okay. All right, I, I've got one that's wonderful, I think. I was told once that I'm a dweller, and by the same person, I was told, now you're going to dwell on the fact that I called you a dweller. <laughs> So basically, how do I stop dwelling? <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, there's a PS. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. There, uh, <laughs> there's no PS. There's no PS. That is a, really a conundrum. It I is mean, a- and it's a great question. How do I stop being me? <laughs> right? Yeah. We all have that thing, right? We all have that thing that we know we are. If, if we allow ourselves mm-hmm. to hear some of the criticism we've received over the course, for example, of many relationships. Right. It's in the suggestion box yeah. over and over again <laughs> on the way, on the way out what's the door. What's in your suggestion box over and over again? You need to not wear a V-neck sweater every day. <laughs> That's in there. So I think of this question in this way, that the human arrangement is that we are by nature obsessive. We dwell on things. And you know this, uh, if you, any of you who are around small children, they are naturally obsessive. They can hear the same book 150 times. When I go home, my daughter's going to want to hear the same book she heard last night. They understand reading essentially as a form of prayer. They have no problem with over and over and over again. And what happens as we get older is that that gets socialized out of us. But the real question is, if you are an obsessive, that's the one verb in our language that already connotes an internal conflict. You're deeply drawn to something, but you feel bad about it. You're dwelling on it. You're perseverating. To me, the question is, why do these things have meaning to you? Because they do have meaning. Whatever you are obsessed with in your life, whatever you can't get rid of by other means, is what you should be thinking about, making art about, talking about with your therapist, whatever it is, or with your friends. So the question isn't, are you a dweller or not? But to what extent are you going to dig beneath the surface anxiety to what you're actually after? What is the meaning of these things that you dwell on? I like that that deep questioning approach. And so However, I'm gonna, I agree with it. No, I, I don't. I'm, I'm going to just... So there's two ways, I think, mm-hmm. that I've solved problems in my life. One is doing exactly what Steve 
suggested and seeking to essentially go to the root and to, to ask a bigger question, if you will. But there are also times that you just have to try to stop being you. You have to stop being that person who wears the V-neck sweater every day or, oh. um, or dwells on things. Or in my case, I would say a couple of the things that I sort of struggle with in this way on a daily basis is wanting to make everyone feel okay, wanting to please everyone. And when somebody's dissatisfied, sort of taking responsibility for that and continuing to engage with them until they feel okay that part of me has brought so many good things, but it's also been kind of a negative in my life. Sometimes at the end of the day, I don't want to just be pleasing everyone. Um, and another one is just controlling everything. You know, if I work really hard and everything will be perfect. Mm. And what I found in my life is whoever, the person who asked this question, first of all, you've made that first step. You have consciousness. You right. are a dweller. You see it as something that both troubles you and sometimes troubles the people who are in relationships with you. And so being awake to the fact that you do this thing, what that allows is for you to maybe do that thing like one less time than you normally would. And I found this really in my own daily life to just say, okay, you know, I might still try to control everything and I might still be a people pleaser. I don't think those things are probably ever going to change. I think I will always have those aspects of my personality for better or worse until the day I die. But I can be conscious of myself doing it and every once in a while do something different. And that's what change is. It's essentially one person doing one thing different one time. Mm -hmm. That's what change is. And when you can do that one thing different that one time, it gives you the ability to do it one more time. And it actually can be a life-changing thing. You know, uh, if, I, if I find myself relaxing in a moment that I might not have relaxed in the past, you know, that's that moment that I get to have that I've actually improved this aspect of my character. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's Onward we go. Uh, recently, I lost a close family member to suicide. Two weeks later, his roommate also committed suicide, mm. both with a gun. It has shaken me to the core. It's my first semester of grad school at Harvard, and I just found out I'm doing really poorly in one of my classes, probably a product of a lack of focus during a trying time. I think I've been experiencing imposter syndrome, honestly. Although I've been seeking therapy, it's hard not to feel hopeless. It's hard not to look at my family and see how poorly I'm coping. It's hard to look at my amazing supportive classmates and not feel like I deserve to be among their ranks. I am always in the library and I'm trying to carve out time for self-care, but everything in my life still feels so out of control. Any guidance? Thank you for your time and compassion. Signed, Reeling. Mm -hmm. So my brother uh, went to Harvard uh, after high school and, uh, and actually ended up dropping out. He was one of two valedictorians in, in his high school class from a very ambitious uh, you know, public high school in California. They both came back east. And um, my brother dropped out after a year and a half. Uh, and the other fellow who was a valedictorian took his life. Now, um, I'm saying that because I think that the precincts of extraordinary ambition the places where that kind of ambition is academically aggregated are real um, petri dishes for this idea of imposter syndrome. It's absolutely pervasive in the precincts where everybody is pushing themselves and everybody, every single person is looking around and silently saying, I don't belong here. I should not be here. I don't have the stuff. 
So that's just the base of where you actually are trying to live your life uh, amid that kind of ambition and that kind of cohort. Everybody's feeling that. More importantly, holy smokes, you have just gone through two extraordinarily painful, difficult uh, events to absorb. Give yourself a little break here if you're not uh, doing up to snuff in your class. That's not actually the agenda at the moment. Be present for your life. These are big things that you're going to have to figure out how to feel about. And at the moment, your top thing isn't competing with the, your Harvard classmates at this moment in your life. When you have space to do that and that's what you want to do, absolutely go to it. And you want to be hard on yourself? Go ahead. That's how you got to Harvard. But at the moment, you cannot have those two competing masters. They will absolutely drive you crazy. And I very much recommend immediately, wherever you are, that you track down the book Loitering by the fantastic writer Charles D'Ambrosio, whose uh, younger brother took his life and uh, his other brother attempted suicide and failed. And he writes with searing precision and beauty about what it is like to be the survivor of a suicide. It is distinct from other sorts of survivorship. So you must find books and other voices and support group if it's necessary, and and it probably is, where you don't feel alone in this particular place. Mm -hmm. I would say yes to all that. And also, you know, I think sometimes, especially when... you go someplace like Harvard, it's, it's an honor to be a student there. It's a big deal, yeah. right? But it can be such a competitive environment. You clearly are putting a lot of pressure on yourself during this time of great suffering. It's really okay to step outside of that. The most important thing in, in this question, um, he or she uses this phrase self-care. But I think that there are moments in our lives, eras in our lives, when self-care demands more. That when you're actually suffering an, an enormous loss or reeling as this letter writer signs his or her name, I think the best thing you can do is actually step out of that sort of pressure cooker that is yep. your life. One of the things I did in my own life when I found myself at that kind of bottom moment is I said, I have got to do something that's going to remind me of my strength. I've got to do something that's going to bring me back to clarity, simplicity, humility, and strength. And so I went and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. And I think that that, obviously, to the person in this room who asked this question, you don't have to necessarily go on a grand journey, but you have to do something else than what you're doing, because what you're doing isn't working. There's a reason you wrote those words down on this card for us. Mm -hmm. And so I hope you'll hear that. And, and remember that the only thing that's important is your well-being, your sense of okayness in the world. Yeah. So go get that. Right. And it, take the long-term view. Ten years from now or 20 years from now, it's hard when we're mired in a particular moment. But 10 or 20 years from now, you're not going to say, that was the stretch of months where I was really struggling in that class. Come on. You're going to say, that was the time that I was trying to contend with these tragedies that came into my life unbidden. That's what you're up to. That's, that's the work that you're doing right now. Okay, uh, dear Sugars, what do you wish you could tell yourselves at 28? At 28? Yeah, what was, what was going on with Cheryl Strait at 28? At 28? 28 was a, a good... Was it, were those the slutty 90 years? No, you know, I was at the end of my slut age at 28. Um, I actually had met... <laughs> like the ice age, there's also the slut age. All right. <laughs> 
I had met my husband. I had finished hiking the Pacific Crest Trail the year before, and I had met the man who was to become my husband. And I was living in Portland, Oregon. I was working at a waitress at a French restaurant called L'Auberge. And I was really trying to write my first book. And one of the things, if I could go back in time, you know, I, I was so tortured at 28 that I hadn't yet finished my first novel. Because I had these grandiose ideas that, like, I would be this young writer who published greatly, you know, in my 20s. And I don't know where I got that idea, because it wasn't like I spent my 20s um, sitting around writing every day. Um, (laughs) See, quote, we were all sluts in the 90s. Right. Um, But... uh, Ibid, right. (laughs) But I was working really hard, and I, and I think that what I would tell myself if I could is, you know, not only that writing would take longer, and, and for this sole reason that it, it turns out that you have to be an apprentice in this world. And I've learned that I, I had to apprentice myself to so many things, to the craft of writing. I had to write a lot and learn a lot before I could write that book that I finally finished writing when I was 34. I also had to apprentice myself to the art of love, to the art of paying the rent, to the art of remembering that quote I began with, which is to find some glimmer in it. There were so many things that I was in the midst of seeking and finding. I still am a seeker. I think we're always learning at every age. But, you know, the 20s are are so much like the toddler years, I think. You know, know, with my kids during those first couple years of their life, it's amazing how much they learn, how much you all had to learn in those first couple years. It's just absolutely astounding. And I think that it kind of replicates itself in our 20s, that we have to learn who it is we're going to become. And... So often along the way, we make mistakes. But it's also, they're also beautiful, glorious years. We learn a lot. So I would mostly just tell myself, I would say, apprentice yourself. Um, quit complaining about it. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I think and wear I, a bikini as often as possible. Yeah. <laughs> now, once again, Cheryl has stolen my thunder. But wait, you know, it kills me. No, I, can we just talk about body stuff for a little bit? I hope so. It's, it, what, what just absolutely makes me crazy is like, even during my 20s, like I felt bad about my body. Then I look at pictures and I'm like, yeah. no, that was so awesome. Like you were, <laughs> you know, you should have been wearing a bikini for that whole decade. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, and then you could just sit around in your 40s and, and look at pictures of yourself in a bikini. And dwell on them. <laughs> Oh, no, you're, you're up next. Oh, you don't want to tell your 28 years? Well, let's us. see. Uh, yeah, okay. Oh, you thought you were going to just get away with it. I did. I did. Oh, no. But uh, I think I would have said something along. Certainly, I would have said, get your ass into therapy, to be quite honest, uh, which I was resistant to out of bullshit, prideful nonsense. And I had a lot of stuff to try to figure out, and I needed professional help. So kill me. Um, <laughs> and my dad even tried to say to me, he said, you know, basically, like, I see you struggling and being quite unhappy, and why don't you get some therapy? And I was greatly taken aback and wounded, narcissistically injured would be the term we would use. And he looked at me and said, Steve, you don't understand. I love you. I want the best for you. He was trying to say, look, I don't want you to be in this state where you're internally conflicted and blind to what your true desires are and self-thwarting in so many ways. That's no way to go through life. You need some help sorting this out. Your mom and I cannot do that, right? And the people around you, as loving as they might be, you need some help. You need a professional, 
who's going to help you figure out the places where you're really holding yourself back and being too mean to yourself. The central message from all those years of therapy is just you're trying your hardest. Forgive yourself. Do what you can and forgive yourself the rest. Hmm. Okay, we just have time for like like one or two more questions. That is do you have crazy. A, do you have one that you're just dying to answer there in your little in hand? My, in my... You're not your little hand, your big hand. <laughs> <laughs> Men always they're, hate they're when you all... say anything is little on their, on their bodies. It's a word not to use. On your little tiny... You know, when I was first... Have I ever told the big farm girl story on the radio show? I believe you now have to. So my, my husband, who I love dearly, Mr. Sugar, um, really wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, when we were first dating, we were just madly in love with each other from the start. I mean, there was no doubt at all that he was crazy about me. Um, but uh, we almost broke up because my husband and I had been together for about a year at this point, And I finally met his stepbrother. And Brian, my husband, wasn't there at the moment that I met his stepbrother. And, he, and I said to him, oh, it's great to meet you. He goes, I've heard so much about you. Brian just can't stop talking about you. He goes on and on about how great you are. And I was like, oh, thank you. And he's like, he loves you so much. And then he says, but you know, the thing is, is you, you look different than I thought you would look. Oh, no. And I said, well, how did you think I would look? And he said, well, Brian described you as a big farm girl. Uh-oh. And I, it was all I could do not to immediately just burst into tears and to start sobbing. And I said, he, he called me a, a big farm girl? And and his stepbrother was like, oh yeah, but like he likes that, or he he he. he but he's like, but I don't think you look like a big farm girl. But he he said that you look like a big. So then you know, I, I the next time I see him, I'm like, it's over because, and um, he was like, I told I I love big farm girls. And oh my god. I, and anyway, he he was. I love how men always dig the hole a little deeper. Why am I telling this story? How did we get on this subject? Uh, oh big and little so yeah anyway we've made up about this but um yeah he did say that so we we learned i will never use the word little when it comes to him he will never use the word big when it comes to me (laughs) all right uh so i think you were asking what is in my big farmer hands (laughs) well cheryl since you ask would anyone yeah okay I'll just leave well, I have, there, there are a few more that are, that are all terrific. I'll read one if you would like, if you've got one you're itching to. Yeah, you know, and then, well, I have one that we can end with. Okay, all right, so I'll read this. want to do one more, and then I'll just do a quick one? All no. right, so I'll read this one. Uh, here we go. Dear Sugars, in every relationship I've been in, I always find myself hung up on the person's exes. Mm. I am either jealous or judgmental. Bonus points for spelling judgmental correctly. Yes. <laughs> and always worried that they'll come back into my partner's life and they'll leave me for them. How do I stop this vicious cycle signed envious of exes? Have you ever been envious? of you? Your fetish is men who adore you, so you probably haven't encountered But this. they also have exes. As no, people will. You know, I think that that's a really natural feeling, but it's one that you shouldn't allow to rule you. And I've given advice before, like in my column about jealousy. There's this column I wrote called We Are All Savages Inside. Yeah. And it's about a writer who was feeling jealous about his or her colleagues who were getting like book deals and so forth. But I think it, it comes out, it, it's a very similar feeling. What, what you are afraid of is that your lover will leave you for one of these ex-lovers. 
or that he will like think about them in, in ways that like that they're better than you or superior to you. And that's just a natural feeling. And that's all it is. And, and you need to come up with a rational way to let that feeling go. And I think that that's the only way that we ever manage our feelings of envy and jealousy. We realize that they're an, an irrational sort of impulse that, that most of us sort of naturally have because we feel threatened. We feel like that something that we uh, either deserve or have uh, wasn't given to us or will be taken from us. Right. No matter who you are, when somebody else gets what you also would like to have, you know, that, that feeling rises in you. And what I do, it's kind of like when I wrote in Wild about fear is a story that we tell ourselves. The way I managed fear on the trail, the way I managed fear in my life is to say, okay, I feel this feeling. There it is. Hello. Welcome. Sit in the chair. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm going to go live my life without you. And, you know, one thing that I've certainly seen play out in my friends' lives when it comes to sexual jealousy and romantic jealousy is that is really the fastest way to actually get your lover to leave you. Yeah. Is uh, to be constantly obsessing about whether he or she will. And so, you know, if you want to protect your relationship and you really treasure that bond, nurture it. Nurture it out of a place of abundance. There we are again. And that has to do with saying, yeah, I have this feeling. You, there was somebody you used to love, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. And let us be in this moment and have this love now. That's my best advice. Yeah, I think so. And, and also to really think about, again, when something sticks in your craw, it's because it has some meaning and usually it has some precedent. Uh, you, you know, we don't know who you are, uh, envious of exes, but it's every relationship that you've been in. Every relationship that you've been in, you bring this baggage that suggests that for some reason you're not as good as this phantom figure who came before you. And I would really think about why it is that you always have that conception. I think you're smart enough to recognize it's actually me in this case. And it's nothing they can give you. It's nothing they can give you. You have to give it to yourself because they're probably doing nothing wrong. I, I, I suspect they're not sitting there with texts from the old lover on their phone. This is something that you are uh, jerry-rigging against yourself. So why is that? What are the precedents in your family life, in your own romantic history, where you are repeating this pattern of undermining what sounds like, you know, lovers who want to be with you in this moment? They're not hung up on their exes. You are. That's right. Okay. Last question of the evening, and I just mm. want to thank you all. Steve, where did you get your V-neck sweater? <laughs> I uh, knew it. I'm teasing. It's my moment. <laughs> Finally. Beauty Tips by Steve Allman. That's his next book. It's coming out in the spring. He <laughs> it's asked extraordinarily me short. Uh, I'm, I'm on a blurb hiatus, Steve. I'm so sorry. Oh. I won't be blurbing that book. Okay. Um, what is the... I lost the question now. Oh, what is the best and most valuable piece of advice anyone has ever given you? You have offered so many pieces to me that I wonder if a moment sticks with you. Th that's such a great question. You know, really, I think one of the, the greatest source of advice and wisdom in my life, without question was my mother. And I think that our parents are often that, you know, if we had mothers and fathers who loved us well, they play that kind of role. They teach us how to be. And the thing that my mom taught me first and foremost was that very quote that I cited earlier, put yourself in the way of beauty. And even though when I was a kid, it's interesting to me now that I say, you know, quotes are such a 
important part of my life. When I was a kid, you know, my mother, who was the big font of quotes, and there are many quotes that I use in, in Wild and so forth, I, you know, she would say things, we aren't poor because we're rich in love, and, you know, all of these kind of look on the bright side aphorisms that she was really a big fan of, these kind of optimistic quotes. I rolled my eyes at them as a teenager, and yet when I became an adult, I found that these were the values, these were the things that actually allowed me to save myself when I needed to do so. And so I would say that it's that very simple idea of putting ourselves in the way of beauty is a transformative sentence in my life. Yeah, um, I'm thinking as you were talking, Cheryl, uh, years ago when I was a a camper at Camp Tawanga, uh, somewhere near Yosemite. uh, Did you have a camp chant where they go, Tawanga! Does it seem like was no? It like that? I uh, we did not. <laughs> that's not that's not coming back to me. Um, <laughs> but I remember we had this counselor, and um, he was a great guy, and we all really liked him a lot. Uh, I think we actually all kind of saw him as an ideal dad, as will often happen with um, camp counselors. And yet, it was getting to be the end of the um, session, and we knew we were going to have to leave. And I think we were kind of busted up about it in the way of thirteen-year-old boys. There was no way we were going to go anywhere near those feelings. Um, even though we were living in the midst of them. So we went on this overnight, and he took us out um, to stargaze, uh, and we were just being obnoxious. And we were really kind of uh, trying to push him away and upset him because we didn't want to have to leave him. And he said, you know, here we are. The stars couldn't be brighter. We've gotten away from all the light pollution. You've got a sense of the enormity of this place and the beauty of the place that we actually have hiked all these miles to. And he said, rise to the occasion of your one and only heart. And we were all like, whatever. <laughs> but that was more than 30 years ago. And, I, you know. Still, and you I've remember been, it still. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. furious. And he was saying, hey, this is it. You get one chance. It's all precious right now. Show up. Don't strike a sophisticated pose. That's beautiful. I love that. What a great he was way an awesome to end counselor. the show. Rise to the occasion of your one and only heart. That's fantastic. Well, Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in beautiful, sunny, cold Boston. Yes, Boston. Yes. Yay. We are are produced, edited, and enabled by the wonderful, incomparable Lisa Tobin. Yeehaw. We're recording here today in First Parish Church in Cambridge, and our sound engineers are two handsome men sitting over there whose names we don't know. Yes. We should note that they are both better dressed than me, although that's actually not And neither surprising. one of them is wearing a V-neck sweater, I don't think. They, they didn't get the memo. We love to get your letters. Uh, you, please write to us asking for advice, feedback. It's dearsugarradio at gmail.com. And, uh, and today we're going to get a little special send-off by one more song from Amanda Palmer. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for doing what you are doing. Um, so to harken back to one of the themes and dwelling and how to get over whatever we have to get over and through, um, 
you know, making art is a great way to do that, writing. Um, I recommend if you're not artistically bent, if you can't write books, if you are not like a classical pianist, buy one of these. It's a ukulele. They're very inexpensive and the holidays are coming. Sid Vicious played a four-string Fender bass guitar and couldn't sing, and everybody hated him except the ones who loved him. A ukulele has four strings, but Sid did not play ukulele. He did smack and probably killed his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. If only Sid had had a ukulele, maybe he would have been happy. Maybe he would not have suffered such a sad end. He maybe would have not done all that heroin. Instead, he maybe would have sat around just singing nice songs to his girlfriend. So play your favorite cover song, especially if the words are wrong. Because even if your grades are bad, it doesn't mean... You're failing Do your homework with a fork And eat your Fruit Loops in the dark And bring your Etch-a-Sketch to work And play your ukulele Ukulele small and fierceful Ukulele brave and peaceful You can play the ukulele too It is painfully simple Play your ukulele badly Play your ukulele loudly Ukulele banish evil Ukulele save the people Ukulele gleaming golden from the top of every steeple. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 30 wax, then gave her father 31. It left a tragic puzzle. If only they had given her an instrument, those Puritans had lost the plot completely. See what happens when you muzzle a person's creativity and do not let them sing and scream. And nowadays it's worse because kids have automatic handguns. It takes about an hour to teach someone to play the ukulele. About the same to teach someone to build a standard pipe bomb. You do the math. So play your favorite cover song, especially if the words are wrong. Because even if your grades are bad, it doesn't mean you're failing. Do your homework with a fork and eat your Fruit Loops in the dark and bring your flask of Jack to work and play your ukulele. Ukulele thing of wonder, ukulele wand of thunder. You can play the ukulele too in London and down under. Play and sink and play Jacques Brel and Eminem and Neutral Milk Hotel. The children crush the hatred. Play your ukulele naked. If anybody tries to steal your ukulele, let them take it. Imagine there's no music. Imagine there are no songs Imagine that John Lennon wasn't shot In front of his apartment now Imagine if John Lennon had composed Imagine for the ukulele Maybe people would have truly got the message 
You may think my approach is simple-minded and naive. Like if you want to change the world, then why not quit and feed the hungry? But people for millennia have needed music to survive. And that is why I've promised John that I will not feel guilty. So play your favorite Beatles song and make the subway fall in love. They're only $19.95. That isn't lots of money. Play until the sun comes up and play until your fingers suffer. Play LCD sound system songs on your ukulele. Quit the bitching on your blog and stop pretending art is hard. Just limit yourself to three chords and do not practice daily. You'll minimize some stranger's sadness with a piece of wood and plastic. Holy fuck, it's so fantastic playing ukulele. Eat your homework with a fork and do your fruit loops in the dark and bring your etch-a-sketch to work, your flask of jack, your vibrator, your fear of heights, your Nikon lens, your mom and dad, your disco stick, your soundtrack to Karate Kid, your Ginsu knives, your rosary, your new Rebecca Black CD, your favorite room, your Bowie, your, hold on, oh my god, I just had a baby, your favorite room, your Bowie knife, your, oh my god, there's a whole bunch of things, your ice cream truck, your missing wife, your will to live, your urge to cry, remember we're all gonna die!